Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning, brought to you by the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang. I'm joined here in the Boulder Gruppetto Pseudo Studio with Ace Mechanic, Zach Edwards. Hi, Zach. Hello. And joining us from literally the opposite side of the world is tech editor Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Yeah, hello. Is it the opposite? It's pretty close to the... It's not quite opposite, but it's it's awfully far. Okay. All right. Not not quite directly the opposite end of the world, but it, for, for all intents and purposes, it... Sure. Yeah. It's still far enough away. Tr- yeah. <laughs> Uh, absent from this week's show again is, unfortunately, Kaylee Fretz. Kaylee's kid's got a doctor's appointment today, and Ronan is busy. Um, he's on a bit of a secret mission that we can't tell you about until next week. Um, but let's just say he's playing with something playing with something very, very, very expensive at the moment. And we will discuss that one next week. Is it a puppy? Anyway, it is not a puppy. Uh-huh. It is not a puppy. Um, as far as I know, it is not a living thing, although we haven't quite gotten to that part of the discussion in the, his product presentation. So maybe there are living things involved in this thing that might explain why it's so expensive, but we will find out next week. We do have a whole lot of stuff to talk about this week, however. Um, we got some new, uh, well, we got a new bike from Specialized that is actually pretty substantial. Uh, definitely not in terms of cost, but in terms of uh, I guess, effect on the overall cycling population, I think. Got a new helmet from Cask. We've got some more news from Wahoo. Uh, some good news this time. Uh, we have some new rolling resistance results from AeroCoach, which includes the latest Vittoria tires. And we've got some fancy stiffness tests on some road cranks from uh, from Bike Shop uh, Fairwheel Bikes in Arizona. Uh, how's everyone doing today here? Uh, Dave, you have, uh, you've got quite a lot of facial hair today. Mm-hmm. Testing something, deciding it's not working out. So uh, <laughs> next time you see me, I'll I'll have reversed this this course of action. Uh, yeah, uh, that's probably all I need to say on the matter. Mm, okay, and uh, Zach, you still have a whole bunch of bikes hanging on the wall as usual. Always. Not, not quite as many bikes. Uh, bikes in boxes, though. No, nope, got them built. Yeah, got them out. You can almost kind of like see from one side of the shop to the other here. Although your shop is what like. 200 square feet or something no it's bigger than that it's is probably, it bigger i think close to 500 oh wow yeah mm. huh. this this looks like just about the right amount of space for what i need for a workshop yeah hint hint kaylee my garage <laughs> is getting full <laughs> uh anyway let's uh let's go ahead and dive into the news here shall we probably the biggest news on the bike front i would say is this new specialized alley that just got launched uh, well, by the time you listen to this, it'll be yesterday or the day before. Uh, Dave, what is this thing? Why does it matter? And uh, what do you think of it? Yeah, so, I mean, the Specialized Alley is kind of one of those, I guess, iconic entry-level road bikes that a lot of us started on. A lot of us found road cycling through a bike like the Alley, or maybe it was a, a Cannondale CAD, or uh, one of the many numbers of, of Trek uh, aluminium bikes. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's just, it's just a very good entry level bike is what I found out through testing it. And as I said in my review, it's, I've ridden quite a few entry level bikes in recent years and a lot of them kind of leave me wanting to end the ride sooner than I probably should. A lot of them like have, you know, either the fits uncomfortable or the saddles bad or the tires feel awful. And the result of that is just a bike that doesn't really make me want to be on it. And the LA, at least this new LA, uh, wins in that regard. I mean, this is literally a bike that, despite it being an entry-level bike with Tiago components, I ended up choosing to take on on group rides and, and ended up spending more time on it well beyond the point that 
you know, I'd already made up my decision and made up my opinion of the bike for the review. I, I decided to just keep riding it and try different parts on it and just see, you know, how far I could push it. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a legitimately good bike regardless of the price point it sits at. So why is it good? Like, like, is there anything special about the frame in particular? Not really. I mean, it's a pretty basically done aluminium frame. It's about, you know, roughly around that 1400 gram mark for an aluminium frame. The welds aren't necessarily all that pretty. It's kind of a traditional, uh, you know, mitered joint frame. It doesn't really have anything too special about it, but that's also kind of the charm of it is that there's no proprietary parts on this. Everything's basically what you'd find on a bike from 10 years ago. You know, it's a threaded bottom bracket a round seat post, a regular steerer tube. The cables are external of the handlebar. Uh, they do go through the, the, the down tube, but that's, uh, you know, that's pretty common and pretty easy to work with. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a very simple bike. Uh, but just what they've done right is they've just nailed that geometry. Uh, it's, it's a very accessible geometry. Like the stack and reach is probably quite comparable, closely comparable to like the specialized Roubaix. So it's that endurance style geometry. Uh, it's also kind of in line with what you'd find with a, a lot of gravel bikes. Uh, but yeah, they've they've nailed that. And they've also made the frame not too stiff. Like there's there's a, a sense of flex in this frame, a hint of it that, that just makes the bike ride more comfortable. And then combine that with the fact that they've fit as stock like a 31 millimeter measured tire. Uh, yeah, you've got a lot of air volume to run low pressures. You've got a comfortable saddle. It just, it's just a very smooth bike. And Specialized says it runs... It, it- well, they approved the bike to run tires up to 35 mil wide, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's like, that's, you know, that's ISO spec. So, I mean, you could probably squeeze like a 38 in there if you really wanted to. Uh, but yeah, it's designed to run 35s or 32s with fenders. So there are fender mounts on this frame. There's even a uh, rack mounts. Uh, and they've cleverly hidden the, rather than have like bolts on the, the seat stays that you normally require to have racks uh, for a rack, They've actually, uh, it's hidden inside the C-clamp. So the C-clamp bolt actually has an M3, M5 thread in it on on both sides of the bolt. So you can uh, directly attach the the rack to that, which is it's quite a cool little uh, detail that I hadn't, I don't think I've seen anyone else do. I'm sure someone else has done it, but it's, uh, yeah, it was an unexpected detail that. I mean, the bike seems to look pretty good too. Yeah, it does. Uh, I think it like... Personally, I think it looks a lot more expensive than it than it is. Uh, I think the the silhouette of it is very much like a, I guess, kind of like an Athos, a bit like a an older, maybe an SL6 Tarmac. Uh, obviously, when you get up and close, you can see that it's got some pretty obvious welds on it, uh, which is kind of the telltale sign that this is not a more premium bike. But it's, uh, yeah, I, th- I think they've done a very good job. It's got a full carbon fork on the front. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to like about this bike. And I guess my my biggest issue with it is that they, they don't actually offer it in anything higher than a Tiagra spec. I mean, I'd have to imagine that that decision was based on what they've seen from the market. Uh, I guess that would be my guess anyway. I mean, as much as yeah. enthusiasts like the three of us would like to see a higher spec model with uh, kind of a, a, little bit more, a little bit of a more basic, straightforward aluminum frame like this. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, my guess is that at that price point, people just expect to see carbon, I suppose. They expect to see carbon. I also think this whole uh, the whole market of entry-level road bikes is is not what it used to be. I think the, the gravel space has really uh, killed off this segment. And 
I think that's reflected in the fact that when I was trying to do price comparisons on this on this new LA, there wasn't a lot to compare it to. Like I was legitimately struggling to find directly comparable bikes that had, say, the full hydraulic version of the Tiagra group set, like the Soleil Sport that I reviewed. Um, like in the US at least, I couldn't find a very equivalent bike from say Giant or Trek to compare it against. Uh or special uh sorry, or Cannondale. Uh, it's just, I don't know, there's there's uh, some weird gaps in the market forming and I, I believe a lot of brands are filling that with uh, with gravel bikes that obviously have more demand. I mean, uh, granted, uh, Zach, your shop, the Boulder Gruppetto, I mean, you deal primarily in higher-end stuff, um, but still looking at the bikes that are on the wall right now, I find it still kind of telling that the only aluminum bike that's up there is yours. Oh, is that Diverge Carbon? It's a Crux. Oh, it's a cr- oh, that is a cr- oh. You used to have an aluminum diverge, though, didn't you? Yeah, a while ago. Oh, yeah. Mm. So, anyway, well, like all right. Well, <laughs> the only metal bike in this shop is an old independent fabrication with that steel. So, there are no aluminum bikes in this shop right now, are there? Yeah, that's high. I said aluminum. I said there are no aluminum bikes. Oh, yeah, that's right, metal steel. bike. All right, so you have you a t- metal. Okay, fair, fair enough. But still, no aluminum bikes, though. No, mm. unfortunately. Well, that's a little sad. Mm. Yeah. Uh, mm. Dave Zach does it, also have his walls filled with national championship jerseys, so <laughs> maybe slightly it, it different. Is, like I different said, vibe, it, it is not the typical typical cross section of the cycling population. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, Dave, do you have any sense that Specialized, like, like maybe, is sort of dipping their toe back in the water a little bit in this segment? Like, do you think they might expand a little bit if there's more demand? Because I think you mentioned this in the review that's currently up on escape, uh, on escapecollective.com, so you should go check that out. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you had mentioned that basically all of, all the three of us for sure, uh, I know Kaylee definitely, and certainly I would imagine a whole bunch of cyclists who are you know pretty avid enthusiasts right now started out on nicer aluminum road bikes, which as you mentioned are harder to come by. Um, mm. But if I get the impression that this LA Sport is certainly good enough that it seems worthwhile of a pretty nice group set on there and some nice wheels. I mean, you even swapped some of the stuff on there to kind of see what it could do, right? Yeah, yeah I did. Uh, I think it is. I think, unfortunately, Specialized themselves seem to be quite happy to push people towards carbon as soon as they want a nicer bike. I think the other element is that they've got the LA Sprint, which is a premium aluminum bike. Uh, and that's the sort of bike that, if the next step up from Tiago is, is 105 and they've got that bike in the LA Sprint, you can buy a 105 spec LA Sprint. The issue there is that the LA Sprint is just a very different beast. It's The LA Sprint's basically an aluminium version of the Tarmac. It's, it's a full-blown race bike. And what I loved about the regular LA is that it wasn't a race geometry. It was an endurance geometry, which is what most people should be on. Zach? I think it's like you're talking about, oh, well, they should offer this bike in a higher build kit because that's like what you people started on was a nice aluminum bike with nicer kit and stuff but i would say like on the flip side this tiagra stuff that's on it is better than like altegra nine speed was it's better than altegra it's it's comparable to altegra 10 speed like it's pretty good stuff and yeah i mean if you wanted to upgrade this bike i would put some nicer wheels on it and then it's gonna be great like yep like that's the bulk of the weight on this bike and what's gonna affect the most of the feel so I, I saved almost a kilogram, so 2.2 pounds, uh, by simply swapping the wheels to Shimano 105 Carbon, which are not light. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, and to a specialized 28 mil tubeless tire. Um, and that was straight up, that was like 950 grams saved. Uh, so, and that's, you know, there's another like 300 grams there in the wheels without even getting silly with the wheels. So that is shocking. I mean, too, like even just like something like the cassette, like you could put an Altegra level cassette or something on there and that's another. So they've, so they've done a pretty good job there. They've put a Sunrace cassette with like an aluminium spider on it. So they have been a bit cheeky with, uh, a bit sneaky with saving some weight there. Uh, so it's like a 300 gram. 11 to 32 tooth cassette so it's pretty light already yeah uh the other clever thing they did was they put a praxis crank on that which is in the 700 gram range uh whereas like a tiegra crank would be in the 900 gram range so they have been pretty clever with shaving good amount of weight where they can but i mean there's just no getting around the price point and you know the wheels are heavy yeah so, but that's, that's a you know that's, that's an upgrade the, you could always do yep for sure but yeah i i felt like this bike actually just handled like and rode like a really nice high-end bike once you change those wheels so for me i'm just very positive about this bike yes it's not the cheapest entry-level road bike out there uh but it's also looking around shopping around at least for the us it's it's not terribly expensive either it's it's competitive i like too that they've used common sense i would say with how it was built and designed like a lot of companies now are taking their cheap bikes and modeling after their higher end bikes and hiding all the cables and everything, which like have your opinion on that, whatever. But like on the higher end bikes, everything's electronic and you don't have to worry on the low end bikes. It's all mechanical shifting too. And when you put all these bins in the housing to route it through a stem and into the frame, like it's Mm -hmm. not going to shift well at all. And then that, that new rider that just got this bike is going to have a bad experience because it takes a lot of effort to shift the bike where this it's all, all external. I mean, it gets routed through the down tube, but it's basically external cables, and it, it's so refreshingly normal. Yeah, it's just going yes. to work really well. I I did I did sarcastically ask a product manager of Specialized. I asked, uh, "Why didn't you hide the cables through the headset and then compromise everything else <laughs> in order to hit the price point?" Uh, and their response was basically along the lines of, "We decided to make the bike that we'd." like to own ourselves right uh yeah and you know basically and then went on to tell me that there's not a single new component uh created for this la yeah i just think it's refreshing a bit to see like use common sense on how to design a bike rather than like oh this is going to look good on this showroom floor and sell a lot of yeah yeah so yeah and i i think the outcome of that is is one a bike that you can easily upgrade and change parts on in future and two a bike that's not going to cost you an arm and a leg to service down the line and that you'll probably still have running. It'll still be on the road in 10 years time. This, this LA it's, yeah. it's built solid and everything is, I guess, backwards compatible with stuff that with parts, uh, that are common fitment. And yeah, for me, the result is just a very smart, sensible bike that, uh, is not going to become trash when, you know, say, a a special headset spacer or a special <laughs> headset, you know, some, some proprietary component stops being manufactured. Um, yeah. This delay will always be serviceable. I mean, I, I, like I said, it just seems so refreshingly normal. And the reality is if we, I think Zach, you mentioned this earlier, but if you sort of rewind the clock 10, 15 years or something, this would be a high end aluminum frame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. Uh, I think, yeah, it's, you know, it's not, these days i mean there's there's telltale signs that they could always go a step above with what this frame has you know specifically in the worlds is they're a bit a bit 
uh, but, bulky looking, but, should I say? But they're called but, smooth weld. Yeah, that's quite funny. Um, <laughs> So yeah, so apparently smooth weld refers to the process of smoothing over the weld while they do it. So it flattens out the weld and kind of pushes it into the join. Um, kind of like I'm imagining like a caulking gun being like wedged into the the gap of tiles, I guess, where you're like forcing it in. Uh, but yeah, they shouldn't be calling it smooth weld because it's not aesthetically smooth. Um, strong weld. Strong weld is is one that our, our own Joe Lindsay suggested would be a better name for it. Hmm. Well... I guess that doesn't have quite as much marketing buzz. Uh, Either way, it does look like a nice bike. Uh, As I mentioned, the Days Flow review is up on escapecollective.com, so go ahead and check that out. Um, And yeah, looks like a good one, so well done, Specialized. Um, Moving on into some new product news, we have a new new helmet from Cask called the Elemento. Uh, You may have seen this on the heads of various Ineos riders, um, I guess both on the road and cross-country scenes. Um, visually, I think it looks an awful lot like a lot of other cask helmets, uh, I guess in particular something like the Protone, but, uh, cask is saying that it includes quite a bit of new tech for them. They have this new liner material, uh, apparently, uh, Ronan will have a little bit more de- detail on this in his full review that's going to come up in a couple days, but, uh, it seems that cask is perhaps not using traditional EPS foam, uh, or at least not fully using EPS anyway. Um, they have this thing called fluid carbon 12 composite technopolymer hmm. it supposedly absorbs more energy than traditional materials uh which then, then allows for bigger vents and more internal channeling which is good for ventilation in general um but uh there's also this thing that cask is, call, is calling multipod um cask is still a holdout against the whole mips thing um but this is a uh, a 3d printed liner material um sort of padding material excuse me um, 3D printed padding material that kind of looks like a lot of 3D printed saddles that are out there with sort of like this lattice setup. And Cask is claiming that it provides some rotational protection, similar to what you maybe would have gotten out of MIPS or something similar. Um, and it seems like it works because this is the first helmet, I believe, that uh, Virginia Tech's helmet testing lab has given a five star rating from Cask. Uh, the only other helmet that they have in their database from Cask is the Vallegro, which only got a three star rating. All right, this helmet is also not terribly inexpensive, which is perhaps not surprising given that it's a new cask uh, flagship model. It's 400 US, 650 Australian, 335 British pounds or 375 euros. Uh, claimed weight is 260 grams for a medium, which I'm guessing is a CE certified medium. I don't know if they're doing separate CE or CPSC, um, but it's, I would say, in the ballpark for a high-end, moderately aero, all-rounder road helmet. Um but uh, yeah, I don't know. Looks pretty good. And like I said, Ronan's got one on hand right now. He's had one for a little while now, so he should have that full review up shortly. James, can you just repeat what that the, the fluid composite 12 thing was? Cask uh, is calling it fluid carbon 12 composite technopolymer. Okay. And there's no acronym for that? What acronym would you, would you suggest, Dave? <laughs> Uh, I don't know, but it are, are just you feels get, like it needs an acronym. <laughs> I was going to say, are you going to have us slapped with an explicit rating for this episode? Yeah, I was about to, and then I just stopped myself. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It just that one feels like a miss to me because if you were a shop employee and you're trying to explain <laughs> what that is, you're not going to be able to. Right, because really, no. what you, because really, what you want to say is this cask helmet has the latest fuck it technology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
Exactly. <laughs> uh, I don't know. And I just, there goes uh, maybe that's a maybe that's just uh, maybe it makes more sense in Italian. But it's uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just for me this is just like a perfect example of like cycling industry marketing screw up, right? Like just unnecessary terminology. Like just I mean, it's like the engineering and the marketing teams did not talk to each other at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like just just call it PLA plastic, you know, just whatever, whatever three D printed tech it is. Just, I mean, I mean, Dave, I I will raise the idea that uh, perhaps Cask, perhaps no one has, at Cask has even thought of that possibility, and mm. I dare say if no one has thought of that, and if this wasn't some sort of like little secret inside joke that they had, uh, you may be throwing some throwing some uh, well, you may be raining on their parade just a little bit here. Uh, I think so, but I think the parade needs to be rained on a bit when you've got a, <laughs> a five-word description of what your oh, foam is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just <laughs> anyway, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough. I, I'm yeah. I'm just I'm unnecessarily angry about this, but I'll uh, I'll let it I'll let it slide. All right. I was well, looking at some photos of this too, and like the the pads on the helmet are 3D printed, right? And they just look mm. like like the saddles. Like it looks like it's a rubber. I've not seen one in person but that's what it looks like it is and to me i'm sure it's comfortable but like you also kind of want the pads in your helmet to absorb some of the sweat and then it's like a nice material that then lets the sweat evaporate rather than it all running onto your face and into your eyes so i'd be really curious how this helmet manages sweat well as i said we will find out all that soon i think because Mm. as i mentioned ronan's been running one for the last few weeks uh he's been definitely been putting it through his paces so uh yeah we'll find out all that and and more and maybe we will we will see if there's anything to this uh fluid carbon 12 composite techno polymer material in short order uh speaking of helmets though uh uh zach's wife ruth winder just walked in a second ago and it brought me up uh, reminded me of something else i wanted to talk about in this episode because she was wearing the new trek velocis helmet and uh, the reason why i wanted to bring that up is because uh, we had been catching, I was going to say we had been catching wind. There was definitely no no pun intended there, but we had been catching wind that um, Trek has been transitioning a lot of its formerly Bontrager branded products to Trek. Uh, it did it with clothing last year. It did it with helmets this year. Uh, and it's moving a lot of it, well, basically most of its accessories from Bontrager to Trek branding. Uh, components are still apparently going to be uh, continued as Bontrager. Um but uh, this seems to be a pretty interesting branding exercise here because I still remember, what was it, almost three decades ago now when Trek bought Bontrager. And it was a big deal because at the time, Trek just didn't really quite have the brand cachet, certainly that it does, ha- that it does now. And that seemed like a very quick and easy way to kind of get a toehold and a little bit of a higher-end market. And I guess now they've decided that the Trek brand name is a lot stronger than Bontrager. It's definitely an interesting move because, like, you see Specialized with Revol and Giant with Kdex. They're, like, trying to have this alternate brand that everyone knows is the same thing but is a different brand so that it opens up the potential to sell the products to people that aren't necessarily on, say, a Specialized or a Giant bike. And it's interesting that Trek is going seemingly the opposite direction. Well, I mean, they they did say that they are going to maintain the hard goods as bond trigger as for like, you know, components, wheels, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, like, uh, um, as, but, it seems like if it's successful, though, then what's to stop them from then having a trek wheel or a trek tire or right it, it's not like anyone's under any illusion that the bond product is not from trek right 
Mm. It does. It does seem like they're they're following the same path as their competitors, though. Because if you're using the example of Giant and Kdex and and Specialist and Roval, it kind of seems like what exactly what Trek is trying to do is they're trying to really keep the Bontrager brand just for its like you know its wheels and tires, for example, rather than have this market confusion of it you know being shoes and helmets and everything else. Uh, you know that's kind of exactly what Kdex is, and it's it's certainly what Roval is. You know with the just a few high-end components and you know a whole line of wheels so i don't know it, it almost feels like trek's following others on this i mean trek it's... historically has been uh, i guess one of the more conservative brands out there or certainly more conservative and specialized as far as their marketing stuff um so i would have to imagine that they've got an awful lot of market data to support this move um trek isn't really a company that's known for taking a whole lot of risks or sort of just going on gut feel i would say um and you know certainly trek has definitely since those early days of buying bond trigger i mean trek's trek's brand reputation i I think has definitely moved up multiple rungs of the ladder in in that time since i mean their stuff is pretty well regarded at this point yeah um and yeah as far as the whole bond trigger roval kdx thing uh, interesting. Interestingly enough, I feel like I feel like Kdex has almost done the best job of the three at really separating their at least their wheel product. Anyway, um, maybe because they really don't use that brand on the giant inline stuff very much at all. Um, but uh, I mean, I remember not too long ago uh, at at the old place, uh, I had done a profile of my of my personal seven road bike and. Uh, I got a whole bunch of flack from people because I used a Bontrager one-piece carbon cockpit on that thing. And, I mean, I didn't really care that it said Bontrager on it, but it was just – it was the dimensions that I wanted. It was the shape that I wanted. And I thought it was just a really good, high-quality piece, which is why I used it. Um, but I just found are it you, interesting. Are that you still using that bar? I am not. I am not. It got recalled. It got recalled. Yeah, I, I thought I, so. I cut yeah. it in half, and it is in the trash. Okay. Never to be All used right. again. Okay. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I was going with that question. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, anyway, point being, uh, it, it is interesting that you know if you go into your local Trek retailer, you are going to see an awful lot more of this stuff being branded as Trek mm-hmm. and not Bontrager. So, just a yeah. little interesting little little anecdote there. Yeah. Do we think it'll impact their sales? I don't think it'll positively impact their sales, but do we think it'll negatively impact their sales? I, I don't know I, why it would. I mean, yeah. does does anyone no. think? Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. I mean, does I think at this point we are a long, long way from Bontrager being like this cool little Santa Cruz brand making making mm-hmm. you know, sweet steel and titanium hardtails. It's just not the same brand that it used to be. Yeah. So I wonder if uh, that cachet that Trek essentially just bought um, in the mid '90s. I wonder if that's kind of worn off by now. Yeah. I mean, most people I feel like don't know Bontrager outside of it being a Trek product. No. Yeah. So no, I, I think it's kind of just a new name, but isn't going to make any difference to anyone. I don't think so. I mean, it, it may make mm. a difference just because, like I said, at this point, I wonder how many people know what Bontrager is or who Keith Bontrager is. Um, and Keith Keith has kind of pulled away from the cycling industry, and um, yeah, I think for I guess the current generation of cyclists, just yeah, unfortunately, a lot of them probably just don't really know what the history is behind that name. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Yeah, just just interesting to note. 
Um, in other industry news, um, we've been talking a whole lot about what's been going on with Wahoo Fitness. Um, mostly bad news, unfortunately, as far as their financial status, but that seems to be turning around now, or hopefully will be. Uh, it was just announced that founder Chip Hawkins, together with the uh, the Roan Group, uh, which is uh, the original uh, venture capital investor and partner uh, for Wahoo, and uh, along with David Wickman, who is of Jury Capital and Human Powered Health, and RZC Investments, aka the Waltons, uh, the three of them have bought the company back from the banks. Um, so the details of that whole thing are a little hard to come by and don't really know a ton about some of the nitty gritty stuff. Um, I'd have to imagine not everyone's happy, however, because that sort of debt going away doesn't just happen without someone being unhappy. Um, but hopefully this is the beginning of Wahoo coming, kind of coming back to what it used to be, maybe regaining a little bit of its, of its old mojo, um, mm. Yeah, I mean, this just got announced not too long ago, so it's it's certainly going to be a little while before we find out what sort of effect this has. But it seems like, for consumers anyway, this is good news. It is good news. I mean, competition is always good news. Wahoo has traditionally been a very good competitor in the space. Uh, you know, it they are single handedly responsible for Garmin computers being nice to deal with now. Uh, you know, like the, the user interface would just still be terrible on Garmin if it weren't for Wahoo pushing that, that game forward. I guess my question is, is what will change internally to ensure that they don't repeat on the same mistakes? Uh, cause it does sound like a lot of the, the same upper management, uh, are still there and are still involved. And I guess, Hopefully, you know, some lessons have been learned that, yeah, they don't end up in the same place in three or four years' time from now. But yeah, time will tell. Yeah. And I obviously, you know, we obviously don't have that transparency. So it's a private company. We don't, we don't have that insight into the, into the company. So, I mean, it's just, you know, nothing more than speculation. But yeah, hopefully they can figure it out. Yeah, it would be nice if, uh, it, it would be nice if we saw Wahoo kind of returning to spending a little bit more attention on their core competencies uh, and maybe not expanding super aggressively. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think we're all pretty big fans of their computers. Um, the watch was unfortunately a pretty big miss. I would imagine that cost them quite a bit. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see where things go from here. But again, it, it does seem like it's 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 at least not progressively worse news as things were going. So this at least sounds like they're kind of bringing things back. Uh, hopefully it's a good thing that Chip Hawkins is seemingly back in some level of control of the company. Um, and yeah, as I've mentioned before, we'll keep our eyes on this one and see where things go, but it seems like a positive development. Hopefully fingers crossed. We'll see. Yep. Indeed. Uh, heading back to product. Um, we have, uh, well, not too long ago, we talked about the new Corsa Pro and Corsa Pro Control from Vittoria. Uh, and a lot of the changes that Vittoria made on that tire were done in the, in the uh, I guess, pursuit of lower rolling resistance. And now we have confirmation from our friends at AeroCoach, uh, who have done a bunch of roller testing, and they have confirmed that the Corsa Pro is definitely a very fast tire. Uh, in their testing, they showed to be the basically the second fastest tire only behind the specialized turbo cotton that isn't a dedicated time trial model. Um, and the 26 millimeter width is basically in a dead heat with the 25 mil Conti GP5000, um, which is another fast tire that we know about. Um, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing super surprising there, I would say. But um, 
I guess good. To, it's good to get some confirmation that what we have felt on that tire and what we seem to have perceived of the tire is actually what it really is in the real world. Um, what I would say is is a little bit surprising, however. Um, this isn't necessarily new data from AeroCoach, but just looking at all the tires that they have tested, and granted, some of these tests go back several years, it's kind of surprising how big of a difference there really is between a lot of higher-end models, though. Like, yeah, according to AeroCoach's testing, a pair of those Vittoria Corsa Pros uh, requires uh, it's a 27.2 watts of energy per pair to maintain 45 kilometers per hour, and that's just in terms of rolling resistance. Um some of the worst tires in the list, though, however, they were pretty bad. <laughs> they required almost 50 watts of energy. So uh, pretty pretty horrible. Yeah, I mean, that that worst tire, I'll say it because it's publicly available data, but uh, Kadex is at the bottom of that list um, with their race tubeless TLR tire. So, yeah, I mean, it's... It's not that surprising to see Kadex so low down the list when you feel that tire. It's it kind of does have a bit of like a kind of a rigid feel through the tread, I guess. Like it's like when you have it in your hands, it does feel a lot thicker than some of these faster tires, especially like those the the time trial specific tires. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's surprising to see it more than double the rolling resistance. I mean that, that tire that is quite substantial. That tire feels like a cheap training tire. When it's marketed as a race tire, it's marketed as a race tire. It's it's a very expensive tire. I mean, they they, Kadex will tell you they're not holding back in the technology in that tire and the expense on that tire. Uh, so it is surprising to see it perform so poorly. Uh, I also know that that tire uh, is this public available knowledge or not? Either way, uh, Maxxis is the manufacturer of those tires, uh, and they and the Maxxis tires as well don't. Uh, you know they're consistently not low down the list, should I say? They're they're quite high in the rolling resistance stakes. So I mean that's uh, where am I looking? The high road TLR is sitting at about forty two watts for a pair to to maintain at forty five k an hour. So I mean that's that's not a super fast tire for another tire that's pitched as a as a high end racing tire. No, and and to put this into perspective, I mean forty five kilometers per hour to a lot of people on the surface is going to seem like a pretty unreasonably high speed, but the reality is it's a pretty achievable speed for people of even kind of like modest fitness, I would say, even like relatively seasoned cyclists. Um, and then when you're looking at those kinds of differences in watts, like 20 watts at that, mm. that's a 20 watts is a lot. Yeah. Um, and that's just straight up rolling resistance. And that will continue to increase as you go up in speed. Um, but uh, I mean, it kind of reinforces the idea that, We've all ridden nicer tires, and we know that they feel better. Uh, they're kind of just often just more enjoyable to ride. Um, but this puts numbers to that sensation and just reinforces the notion that tires really do matter an awful, awful lot when it comes to bike performance. Yep. Yep. Best upgrade you can make. Uh, arguably one of the most cost-effective ones I'd say you can make, too. Yeah, indeed. Um. All right, moving on to another set of bench tests, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, Fairwheel Bikes, they are a pretty prominent uh, high-end retailer in Arizona. Um, they have done crank stiffness tests, uh, like bench-style tests, for I'm not really sure how many years and how many iterations they've done of this now. Um, but they just did another round, and uh, they tested 16 different road models from 10 different brands, uh, made of three different materials, including carbon fiber, aluminum, and titanium, uh, and some of the results are 
pretty, I mean, I'm not going to say eye-opening, but they're pretty interesting to see. Um, not least of which because there is roughly a 50% difference between uh, the stiffest model that they tested and the least stiff model, at least in terms of the amount of uh, deflection that they saw under load. Uh, like, you know, I think the stiffest one was, uh, only had about five millimeters of deflection under the load that they had set up. And the, the least stiff one had eight millimeters of deflection. Um, I mean, they didn't go into any sort of speculation as far as how much that actually matters in terms of performance in the real world. Um, mm. Because you do still have things like, you know, there's some element of energy return probably and different damping characteristics of different materials and whatnot. Um, there's still some pretty interesting things in the study that I think make it worth reading. You know, I should go ahead and search Fairwheel Bikes Crank Stiffness Test. And I think you'll find the find the results in Google pretty quickly. Um, but a couple of highlights is uh, like the Cane Creek E-Wings, those welded titanium cranks that they have. Um, they're not only the stiffest overall, but also the third best in terms of stiffness to weight because those things are also quite light. Um, mm. Quite that impressive. Is surprising. It is surprising. Uh, mm. Quite impressive. Well, maybe it's not super surprising when you look at those cranks just because this cross-section is so big. Um, those cranks do have a wider Q factor by like – I think over 10 millimeters than most typical road cranks. So those arms are big. It's a big, big cross-section on that. And in terms of stiffness for something like that, cross-section is pretty much everything. Um, other thing that's pretty interesting to see, uh, rotors, I'll do carbon and I'll do alloy models. Both did extremely well in terms of both absolute stiffness and stiffness to weight. Um, that's, I think, pretty notable too because I feel like structurally, it doesn't really seem like those things are huge standouts uh, in terms of what they are, I guess, how they make those cranks. Aside from the Ally, one's still really interesting because they do the whole longitudinal rifling thing. Um, but uh, no surprise, Shimano's hollow forged aluminum cranks still continue to do really, really well in terms of overall stiffness, uh, although they are, uh, they do tend to be a little bit heavier than some other models. But what I, what I found honestly really surprising, having looked at these crank tests for a while over the years now, is uh, lightning cranks. It's an old, old design. Um, it's basically the precursor to the old S-Works carbon cranks. Um, but that design uh, is falling pretty far behind in the rankings, whereas before it did really well. And it seems like, uh, I don't think those cranks have gotten worse per se, but I think it's more that other cranks have just gotten an awful lot better and not a whole lot has happened with those. Yep. The, the surprising one to me is the SRAM Red crank, the dub crank being quite low down the list of stiffness uh like the only ones that are tested that are uh more flexible appear to be the eastern ec90sl and the lightning so yeah i don't know that's somewhat surprising but then again the i guess the shram red crank is you know the cross section of it is quite quite narrow um you know to the point that you need to use pedal washers to stop your pedals from poking out the back of them so yeah and i it, there doesn't really seem to be much of a trend either as far as like cranks that have an integrated spider versus ones that don't. Um, uh, like aside from the Shimano, for example, pretty much all of these cranks, if I remember correctly, have separate bolt-on spiders that you know attach with a spline or something like that. Um, so that doesn't seem to matter a whole lot. Um, I, I would have to imagine that helps Shimano just given how those things are made. Um, but yeah, not really sure what that means exactly, but yeah, pretty big spread. Real world question. Uh, we've all ridden plenty of bikes with, say, SRAM red cranks and, say, new Shimano. Let's just say Altegra, which rates a little bit stiffer than Durace. Do you feel any difference and does it matter? 
<laughs> I think like it's interesting to look at the numbers, right? Like it's just kind of an interesting test. But like similar with bikes, I think everything nowadays is all pretty good. It's not like 10 years ago we were doing a crank test and like some are pretty stiff and others are completely a noodle. Like these are all pretty mm-hmm. good cranks. And I think, yeah, like I said, it's interesting, but I think someone's going to buy the SRAM crank because they want a SRAM group set or someone's going to buy the Shimano group or crank if they have a Shimano group set or someone's going to buy the rotor crank if they need 150 mil or something like I'd feel like this is just not going to affect anyone's purchasing. Yeah. I agree that cranks are also a lot better than they used to be. Like, you know, you used to back in the days of square taper cranks or, or even since then you used to look down and you, you know, under power, you could see your, your chain rings moving within the, right. Like that doesn't know, happen within the line of the front derailleur. That's not something that I've, I've noticed or even care to look at anymore. Um, it's, but yeah, I, it it's, is still interesting data, I guess. Yeah, I mean, years ago, um, this was back when Leonard Zinn was doing a lot more writing for Vela News. Um, but I remember him writing an article uh, talking about how bicycles as a system are essentially a whole bunch of springs in series. And when you have them mounted like that, essentially, you can change a whole lot of spring rates as much as you want. But ultimately, the one that you're always going to feel the most, at least looking in, at that sort of sim- simplified setup... Uh, the one you're going to notice the most is always just the softest one. Um, so like if you were to take just one and stiffen that up, great. But that doesn't change the fact that you're still going to feel the softest one the most. So um, I think Fairwheel rightfully does not make any big assumptions. Uh, they don't draw any grand conclusions from this test. Um, but it does seem to me that, yeah, you know, I, I think people would generally agree that when everything in the system is stiffer overall. The bike does feel faster. It feels more responsive under power. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's faster because I think we've got plenty of evidence at this point to show that stiffer doesn't always mean faster. Um, but uh, I, I would say certainly, it, to me, I feel like if you're kind of more of an average rider or more of like a, even a lighter weight rider, it's probably not going to matter too much what kind of crank you go with. Um, but this sort of data might prove interesting if you are a particularly bigger rider or sprinter or something like that, or you just want to make sure everything in the drivetrain system is as stiff as possible, just so it feels good. Um, but you know, re- regardless, this sort of data is always always fun to see. I feel like it's always enlightening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. And they do, yeah, farewell. I mean, for more than a decade, have done this style of engineering led test, which. Uh... Yeah, is there's not enough of that in the bike industry. It's it's very hard to do. It's it's very time consuming. It's costly to do. So, uh, yeah, it's kudos to them for continuing to do so, uh, even though they no longer do their quick release test because <laughs> <laughs> no one's using quick releases. So yeah, I mean, I suppose they could do the test now. It would just be a much quicker and easier test, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. All the all the good options are discontinued, and, <laughs> uh, and the Shimano is still the best. So, right, right. test done, <laughs> <laughs> done, done. Well, uh, like I said, that that test is pretty interesting. So, go ahead and head over to uh, Fairwheel Bikes, uh, look up the crank stiffness test, and go read the go read their write up for yourselves and, and see what you think. Um, all right, that's that's enough news. I think uh, we have gone long in several episodes over the last few episodes, so we've unfortunately kind of skipped a lot of our on your mind segments and some PSA stuff. So I think it's time to dedicate some time back to those in this episode. Uh, Dave, you got anything on your mind at this point that might be over the heads of your family? 
Yeah, uh, I've been spending a decent amount of time on that new Epic World Cup, which we chatted about recently, uh, and been playing a lot with the the rear shock settings. Uh, and don't know if I I like I don't know if I'm a fan of full suspension bikes without sag. <laughs> They're a bit quirky. They pedal like it pedals amazingly. Like, like an old like a, giant NRS, really, perhaps. Like an old giant NRS, definitely get those vibes. Definitely get the vibes of being on. It feels like a hardtail when you're out of the saddle. It feels like a locked out dual suspension, uh, but it also feels like a locked out dual suspension when you hit a rocky climb at speed and your wheels get bounced and then you go sideways. So yeah, sack. Can you set it up to run sag, or is it just that's there's no yeah. option? Yeah. So the whole bike's designed to be. Uh, you can adjust the amount of. Well, you can't adjust the amount of pressure, but you can adjust kind of the volume of the negative air spring. Uh, and then that allows you to set your sag. So, yeah, you can set basically it's designed to set anywhere between zero and 10% sag. Uh, and the sure. 10% sag is still not a lot, but at that point, it does, you know, right, you do right. have some level of uh, compliance to the system. So, but yeah, I don't know. It's there's a lot to like about that bike. It, it feels incredible on the road to have like this automatically, well, not automatically, but pre-locked out suspension system front it's and back. Bike, uh, a road bike. But yeah, off-road, I think I prefer the fork with the brain system just completely switched off. And I think I prefer the suspension set up with the most amount of sag. And even then, I still am starting to understand why the likes of uh, their own factory race team are on the, the Epic Evo at some races. All right, Dave, hear me out. Let me ask you this. So I, I just received one of those test bikes as a sample as well. Um, so I'll hopefully have some of my own thoughts to add to this before you go ahead and finish your full review. Um, mm-hmm. But what I am wondering, like I said, hear me out. Uh, how do you think this sort of suspension design would do as a gravel bike? Particularly set up in the no sag setup probably pretty well so for me it's it's like imagine it's basically a heavier hardtail with all the all the ride feel of a hardtail the difference is is when you actually hit uh, a relatively decent sized bump where you'd normally feel the rear wheel get hung up on that and sort of soak your speed or at least give an impact to the body it absorbs that so i do believe it's more efficient than a hardtail i do believe it's faster than a hardtail especially once terrain is you know mediumly rough uh but yeah it i think for gravel they'd have to do a pretty good job of making it uh more compliant to smaller bumps i think is the reality of it i think that currently the the hit required to overcome that that zero percent sag is uh probably more than what you'd often be experiencing on a gravel bike gotcha fair enough just yeah. like I said, just like curious. seat tube. They do have the Diverge STR thing, yes, which is a very, very different suspension design for sure. Very, mm-hmm. very different uh, sort of goal as far as that. Uh, what what sort of size bumps they're trying to take care of there? All right. Yeah. Well, I will not be taking the time to convert my test bike into a gravel bike, but I mean, please do. That would be quite interesting. But uh, bars on it. <laughs> It would be interesting, but uh, that's it'd be a lot. Oh, I, I guess I could, what I could do, what I could do is uh, 
was it Salsa? What company was it, Dave, that ran uh, that that released those drop bar uh, gravel levers? Or that redu- oh yeah, <laughs> Salsa. It? Yeah, so it was Salsa that reduced uh, that introduced that gravel drop bar that's designed to be run with mountain bike levers, right? Uh, no, Surly. Surly? So so Surly. One They're of those two. Basically interchangeable. But yeah, I think it was but Surly. If you got, had the SRAM bike, you could just get SRAM road levers and then I'd work with mountain calipers. I know, but I'd have to like re- undo all the hoses and reconnect all that stuff. And Yeah. It, it, is, a, it is an access bike, so I guess in theory it wouldn't it would be work. all that hard to swap things around. Yeah. Mm-mm. Well. Please don't. Okay. <laughs> all right. Zach, you have- <laughs> but the, the reach is going to be too long. The reach will be quite long for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, Zach, what about you? You got anything on your mind this week? Uh, I've got kind of a niche one, really, lately. Ooh. I've been thinking about track bikes because they've announced yeah. the track here is opening. I've had a few people. Oh, reopening, we should reopening, say. Reopening, yeah. Um, after it's been closed for the last few years. And I've had a few customers kind of inquire about building a track bike. And I've been looking around and there's not really much out there. There's like cheap fixies that aren't track bikes. Or there's your racing World Cups and Olympics track bikes. There's not really anything in between right now, which is kind of, I understand it's a very niche thing, but it's also a bit sad. Because it used to be what, like the Surly Steamroller was your kind of entry level, right? Or like Specialized had or the LA, or not the LA, yeah, but the true. Langster. Yeah. Um, like there yeah, were, there were, Cannondale had one. Yeah, yeah. Most companies offered some sort of basic aluminum track, track frame, bike. like with Track yeah. Geo. Maybe Felt, they sold Felt it with a, big one. a front brake or something, but. Like, mm. was still a track bike. And even, like, you could still get nice, a few years ago, you could get nice carbon, like, mid-level track bikes. And now that just doesn't exist. And even on stuff with wheels, too. Like, Zip used to make 404s and 808s, and now, seemingly, all they have is some leftover disc wheels. They don't have anything else. Um, it's just very interesting space out there right now. So what you're telling me is that the government level funding for professional racing is maybe uh, not aligned to where people are buying bikes. Correct. Yeah. Oh, weird. What a, what <laughs> Funny a, that. Yeah. <laughs> how, how bizarre. It's just, uh, I don't know. Like, I understand track is very niche. And if you don't live next to a track, yeah. then it's it's mm-hmm. very hard to get into track cycling. But if you do live near a track, it's I think it's a great way to get into bike racing, particularly as juniors and like... Most tracks have a good junior program and it's like a controlled environment to learn how to race bikes. So I'm like a huge fan of track racing and it's just, it's fun to watch. And I don't know, it's just a bit sad that there's not that, that bike anymore, which I understand why, because people don't buy them anymore, but like, it's just seems from now versus a few years ago when people were still racing track here, that all those products have all disappeared. Mm. All right. Well, speaking, speaking of track bikes, um, I, I should preface this by saying that one of the people who is behind this company is a good friend of mine that I go back a long, long way. Um, but uh, I became aware of this, uh, a, a new track concept, I should, should say, that uh, came out not too long ago called, uh, I think it's called Strom, S-T-R-O-M-M. Um, but uh, it, it's basically a Kickstarter. And what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to take advantage of the changes that the UCI made to its technical rules not too long ago, uh, in terms of the uh, like airfoil section depth and um, uh, like cock or sort of rider reach dimensions and stuff like that that have changed quite a bit in track racing. Um, and yeah, they're they're trying to get something to market in time for the next round of the Olympics because. 
according to them, they feel like not too many people are going to be able to take advantage of these changes in time to get something on the ground and, and have it be put into competition in time for, for use in the next round of the Olympics. Um, but uh, they're running, I think, like a six to one section depth and it's a f- dramatically, dramatically longer reach because uh, I guess a lot of the track people, they're running – they were running like insane stem lengths, like 170, 190, something like that, um, basically just to get, try and get stretched further out because they're not able to make their frames any longer. Um, but uh, yeah, as far as new track bike goes, that, that's seemingly one of the most intriguing ones that I've seen that's over still the like, last little while. We want to race World Cups on it. That's not... That's not like, it, no, I'm it a, is still not I'm a, a Cat 3 bike. racer no, and no. I want to do some track racing. Correct. Like that's still that, a ten thousand dollar frame, probably. That, uh, it, they're not asking ten grand. I think I think they're not even asking. Maybe they're close to like a third of that or something. But anyway, it's still it's still like a Kickstarter thing. It's not like an actual product yet, but it, just something that I thought worth was worth noting. Yeah. To to Zach's point, I mean, I'm I'm thinking back quite a few years here, but it used to always be the used market that kind of consumed that sort of entry level you know i want to try out track for a season kind of market and because track bikes don't you know traditionally like those those entry level track bikes they don't really have too much going on with them they don't really have it and too many failures you know like unless they're involved in a crash they're probably going to last a lot of seasons of use yeah totally and the geometry doesn't really change they don't really get dated uh, so from memory, like the used market used to be pretty strong of people trying out track, buying a used bike, you know, life getting in the way and then them selling it on to someone else. Uh, and the circle of life continues. Um, is that still the case? Are you Have you had a look in the used I mean, market? I was, is I was there looking, anything? Yeah, I was looking there. Um, there's definitely used stuff out there for sure still. But even stuff like chain rings, like there used to, everyone yeah. used to make track size chain rings. And now there's like two companies that make them that are readily available. There's a lot of boutique companies, right. That make ones for racing world cups. Um, but like everyone used to make track chain rings or track cranks. And like now it's just, it's just, yeah, it's just interesting how there's less products being made. Yeah. A lot more specialists. Yeah. Yeah. Like Like, I guess too, I wonder if some of it is like the red hook crits for a while, they used all track stuff Mm -hmm. and that went away. So like SRAM stopped making their track cranks, right? Because, that was the market for those. Um, yeah, just interesting. I guess we've seen yeah. that in other niches of cycling too, like like cyclocross uh, was, it really wasn't too long that that was really, really hot, particularly in the US. Um, and now with the advent of, well, advent and, pop, and growing popularity of gravel and how similar those two types of bikes are, I think we have basically seen nearly every cross bike that once existed get sort of transformed into more of a gravel bike. To me, hilarious. Because, like, I grew up racing cross. And, like, for the longest time, you were taking these bikes and kind of finding, like, weird brakes from Europe or, like, kind of piecing together stuff that wasn't really designed for the the cyclocross bike, right? And then, like, just as cross bikes got really, really good, it died. And everyone quit making them. And I find that just, like, so funny and ironic. They were getting really good, weren't they? Yeah, they got like tires and wheels and frames and like gearing and everything was just so dialed just in time for it to die. Mm-hmm. Oops. James, what's on your mind? Uh, I've actually been thinking a lot about sort of uh, weight weenie stuff because uh, I'm, well, I'm actually in the process of, or I, I should say I just finished building up a new cross-country bike for my wife. Um, and she is... I would say she was a recovering weight weenie cross country <laughs> racer. Um, she did get over it for quite a while. And then she decided not too long ago that she uh, is kind of tired of 
only having her like 30, 32 pound sort of all mountainy bike to pedal around on, especially when she's kind of trying to chase around other people who are on like 20 something pound little cross country whippet bikes. Um, and she picked up, uh, picked up a bike and she was like, why is this thing so heavy? I'm like, it's not that heavy. It's like 26 pounds. Um, but, uh, that's kind of heavy. Well, that, yeah. that, one, that one wasn't her bike. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but she was kind of, well, in looking at ways to make bikes lighter, it reminded me that um, if you are really trying to go for like a truly, truly light build, um, like she was asking what she could do to make things lighter. And the sad reality is if you really want to make a really light bike, you kind of have to make everything lighter. Um, because Dave, I know this is something that you found out when you were reviewing that specialized LA sport. Um, this is something that I looked at when I went through those two Canyon ultimate road bikes that I was comparing. Uh, there are often a handful of ways where you can lop off pretty decent chunks of weight in one go. Um, but once you get past, well, once you go for the low hanging fruit, um, from there, shaving off any appreciable amount of weight from there requires a lot of effort and a lot of money. Diminishing returns for sure. <laughs> like sharply diminishing yeah. returns. Like that whole, mm-hmm. I mean, back in the day, it used to be the, the rule of, you know, if you wanted to sh- shave a gram, it, you had to pay a dollar. And I, th- yeah. and I feel like now it's almost like $10 a gram. <laughs> like it's like the oh, yeah. diminishing returns are ridiculous. I mean, it's like yeah. 10 grams here, 20 grams there, 15 grams there, and just all these little things. And exactly. then they all add up and yeah. all of a sudden you're a kilo lighter. Yeah. But you have to upgrade every single thing and shave off a little bit of weight on everything to make it lighter and then all of a sudden you've got a whole different bike what i found the biggest issue with modern mountain bikes compared to say when i was properly weight weaning like 10 years ago on mountain bikes is tire weight like that's in my head like uh you know yes it was 26 inch wheels back then but in my head it's like a tire is 500 grams yeah like you know a lightweight xc tire is 500 grams but no it's like a new lightweight xc tire that's kind of world cup worthy is like 750 ish grams now so I mean, right away you've got half a kilogram, half a kilo penalty right there, like compared to where we used to consider a lightweight bike to be. Um, so yeah, for me that's that's the big thing to keep in mind. I think too, it's so much of a trade-off. Like I also was a recovering weight weenie for XC mountain bikes for quite a long time. Oh, like we're all would but recovering like, weight weenies. <laughs> it's also like even on current bikes, like whether it's my bike or Ruth's bike or whatever, like it's always a compromise too. It's like, okay, we can save weight here, but is this actually going to hold up to like a season of mountain biking or is this like, we're doing this just for one race. Um, mm-hmm. and like you can do things like, Oh, let's put a hundred grand or hundred mil travel fork on it. Cause that saves a lot of fort weight, but then it's like, okay, well then it's a worse mountain bike. Right. And like, I don't know, it's always a trade off of real world usability versus it being light on the scale. Yep. For example, like the Epic world cup I'm testing didn't come with a dropper. Right. Uh. Which is right, stupid. Which like, but anyone that's writing that is going to have a dropper. Yeah. So I've I added a bunch of weight by adding. You know, I took a. I have an access post on my or access reverb on my own hardtail, so I just took that off. Very which is like one of the heaviest seat posts but, out there. Yeah. Yeah. But I've just added half a kilogram to the bike with a seat post. Yeah. Um. So, but yeah, worth worth it. But uh, anyway, right. that's and that's that's I guess that's what I'm saying. Like you adding weight to your this epic world cup makes it a mm. faster better mountain bike yeah right because you now have a dropper and it's better in technical stuff like it is a better faster yeah. mountain bike than one that's lighter uh kind of continuing on this little bit of a tangent um 
one of the bikes that I'm testing right now, and just kind of in the process of finishing up, uh, is that giant Revolt X that uh, that mm. that gravel bike that they've got with a Fox suspension fork and their mm, own the drop bar mountain bike. Yeah, they're and they're yes, exactly, and and their own dropper slash suspension seat post. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have to say when I first built it up, when I first went out on the couple of rides on it initially, I was kind of like, this bike is dumb. I, I will fully admit that that was kind of the first thought that went through my head. Um, like the Maxxis Rambler tires that it comes on, that it comes with, you know, when I've ridden those in like a 40 mil size, I thought they were really pretty decent, yeah. you know, decent rolling, yeah, like pretty versatile, nice and tough. Uh, in a 50 mil version, however, they are quite heavy and quite slow rolling. Um, but, um, I actually ended up swapping swapping those tires for a set of the new Challenge Getaway XPs, uh, which again they're quite quite a bit narrower. They're forty mil, um, and they're definitely a, a different type of gravel tire than those Ramblers. Um, that bike still is not very light. It's still, we're still looking at like ten kilos or something like that. Um, so it's still quite heavy for a higher end gravel bike. But I have to say, when I was on the ri- on a particular ride the other day, and I was coming down. Um, uh, Zach, it was com- just for, for locals' reference, I was coming down from Gold Hill, coming down Sunshine. Oh, yeah. It's um, always washboard. And the top section of that descent, it, it is often washboarded, uh, and there's a whole bunch of uh, dirt switchbacks that you come in, each one of, each one of which you come into pretty hot. Uh, and then even once you get through the dirt section at the top, you've got this really nice, beautiful, long road descent, but the road, uh, but the, the, the tarmac's quite coarse. Um, and I would say, I'm going to. Pr- for everyone's reference, this is a common road cycling route. It is a very common road cycling like route. Road bikes, not full suspension gravel bikes. Correct, correct. But that said, uh, I have done that route plenty of times on just kind of more normal gravel bikes, and I absolutely ripped that upper section of gravel on this bike that was quite heavy. Uh, and I attribute that completely to the suspension and being able to descend with a dropped saddle. How much slower did it? take you yeah. to get to the top though i was, oh, was just gonna say what, what about 97 percent of the rest of the ride uh you know we we're kind of casual pace going up so yeah, yeah okay. i wasn't necessarily trying to go super fast but no I, I it also doesn't help that we have a whole lot of wildfire smoke in the area right now coming down from canada so we weren't we definitely weren't going for any uphill koms or anything um yeah, okay. but coming down was pretty interesting and i'm not going to say i'm still not going to say that that bike would be my everyday sort of gravel bike um but uh, reason why I just reason why I brought that up is just as a little bit of an anecdote that um, less weight, as you were saying, Zach, less weight isn't necessarily always better across the board. I mean, it does depend. Yeah, I I don't know if that would be my any day kind of gravel bike, but um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll save that for you to review the bike. Um, all right, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up with a PSA because we haven't done that in quite a while. Um, mm. I've, I've got one if you don't mind me grabbing this round here oh please um not too long ago on instagram uh Raul lucher who uh he's in melbourne i believe isn't he yes he is uh he's he's in melbourne australia he, he does an awful lot of uh carbon fiber and inspection and testing and repair that sort of thing and he posted a really eye-opening picture on his instagram account um of what we have all deemed the the ring of death uh which is essentially what you get on the surface of a steer tube, usually if you run uh, with your headset loose for too long, let's just say, doesn't necessarily have to be a long time, but just certainly too long. And uh, it was a shocking amount of wear on the outer surface of the steer tube. And the reason why that is so concerning is one, because it's hidden. 
Uh, and two, because that is one of the highest stress parts of your bike. And when you're, when and if your steer tube breaks, uh, it is guaranteed to be an unpleasant outcome. Yes. It seems like a very common issue. Why has the collective bike industry not came up with a way, a different way to make the headset tighten against the fork? Well, I, I was, I was thinking about that because I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with how the, he, the, the headsets are adjusted. But most people don't know whether their headset should be adjusted or it needs tightened. Fair. Or loose. That's, like that's, most people have zero idea what it should feel that, like. That is fair. Yeah. But what, what I would like to see is, um, uh, to me, I feel like the reason why this is such an issue is because the split ring component of the headset is so, short is because so there's so little it longer exactly that's what out. i was wondering about why i mean i'm sure the the bike Some industry up. would say that they yeah. don't want to well, use because so they're heavier factor i've remember yeah. on one of their bikes they did but i feel like i've built some since then one. and they've gotten rid of it yeah but yeah, all in fact had a long a long carbon injected piece that was like four or five times the height of but it was still regular. it was an aluminum machined one but i feel like everyone oh, okay. was on the oh, i'm thinking of Ostro, maybe the, whatever Whatever yeah, the, the Ostro gravel did. had a long, a long like plastic one. No, this was on the Aero Red Bike, and it had a metal okay. one. But I feel like I've built okay. five of those, and every one of them has came with a different steer tube <laughs> shape and design and different headset bits. So, hmm. but that was one that was really long, and it came, and I was like, "Why has no one done this before? Like yeah. spread that load out so you don't get this like five millimeter contact point." Yeah, that was exactly what I was thinking of when I saw that picture from Raul. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that question, Zach. Um, I, I suspect it's because someone somewhere decided that they were too heavy to make that way or too expensive or something. But, um, given the fact that a lot of or an increasing number of particularly high end road and now more gravel and mountain, now mountain bikes have, uh, hidden or partially hidden cable routing that goes through the headset bearing, um, it's going to become increasingly difficult and increasingly less frequent that people are going to be inspecting this sort of thing. Um, and I feel like a lot of people are not going to think that running their headset loose for a little bit is that big of a deal. Uh, I'm sure there are probably people listening to this podcast right now who have, who know that they have a loose headset on their bike and like, ah, I'll fix it later. Um, the, the issue is that particularly with a carbon fiber steer tube, again, the consequences can be pretty dire and it's not really something to be taken lightly. But if it breaks, yep. the brake hoses will hold it together. Oh, so yeah, it yeah, yeah. Sure just thing. Like fully snap. Yeah. Uh, it's such a common issue that I think we've actually had this PSA before. But uh, <laughs> oh, did we have it before? I, did I miss it? Yeah. Uh, not to run a loose headset so you don't wear out your fork, but that's fine. It's it's a PSA worth repeating because it's if we it's repeat a it enough, will the bike issue. industry yeah. fix it? Like, Probably not. We've got <laughs> like, not. threaded bottom brackets came back. Yeah. Uh, just just to add a bit of a practical information to this uh what's the advice for uh for checking for a loose headset oh that's a good question because we did actually just have this question come up on Mm. our uh private escape collective discord channel uh for for yeah for our our escape collective members uh someone was asking how you i mean they could feel something loose up front and they were asking how you could tell the difference between a loose hub versus a loose headset um i guess a couple easy things to check um basically just lock your front brake and rock the bike fore and aft uh, one easy way to look at you can, well, you can feel the, the play sometimes. Um, but I guess the trick is figuring out where that play is coming from. Cause sometimes, especially with disc brake bikes, it can be from the disc pads kind of moving back and forth slightly in the caliper. However, one thing you can do is you can look at the upper headset cover and sometimes you can often see that moving in the frame. Uh, another thing you can do is just turn the front wheel 90 degrees and then do the same test. And 
most of the time that knocking will, well, if it's in the brake pads in particular, that knocking will generally go away. Uh, but if it's in the headset, that will still be there. My favorite way is if you grab the headset spacers or the top, like the bearing cap or whatever, mm-hmm. with your fingers. And if you can rotate them, your headset is loose. Oh, that's a yeah. good one too. And then you don't Especially have to worry about you're the, the yep. brake pads, like making noise, knocking back and forth or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. You can also like, you know, put your hands at various places to isolate what's moving, right? So you can put your fingers into the the back of the brake pad, make sure that's not that is not what's rocking. You can put it onto the disc rotor to make sure that's not what's rocking. If you've got a rim brake, you make sure it's not the caliper. Uh, but yeah, typically I, I do the same thing that Zach does, which is especially if it's round spaces and a, a traditional headset, then that's a very easy one to to try twist. Some of the other like more modern aero stuff, like the way they lock in between the stem and the headset, the the twist trick doesn't necessarily always work out but, but most of the uh, time they're plastic and cheaply made so they still move around <laughs> they just they just they just uh come they're no longer all lined up they're as no longer interlocked. right right yeah, yeah. right yeah. right if your arrow headset spacers now look like an air brake then that's maybe a good sign that your headset might or, be or a game of jenga yep <laughs> yes yes <indeed. laughs> all right well on that note seeing as how uh we now have a repeated psa I, you know zach i don't know maybe maybe we'll just repeat this next week until this starts to get fixed um yeah or every few months we'll it just see. seems like such an easy fix i guess like it it's a very common problem would be a very like, maybe common not problem. easy but like there's enough smart people in the bicycle world that someone mm. could come up with a solution so that carbon steers don't get worn into right a very a very common issue with particularly unusually big consequences if it goes wrong yeah like common, a lot of and, yeah the biggest issue here is that it's a known issue, right? So it's common, but it's also like widely known by brands that that metal uh, compression ring, you know, if involved in a crash can sort of impact and cut the carbon. Like I've spoken with enough engineers in the bike industry that are aware of this and are trying to find ways to solve for it. But it seems just crazy that we have this, you know, this issue has been around for more than a decade with carbon steerers and that we're still seeing bikes the vast majority of bikes still coming out with the same known uh problematic designs and the average consumer like i was saying doesn't yeah no idea doesn't know that that's an issue doesn't know that their headset's loose like they'll ride for weeks and weeks and weeks with their headset knocking and being loose and then they're eventually like oh something doesn't feel right and then yeah at that point it's too late yep yep Mm. well on that on that happily foreboding note <laughs> let's go ahead and Check wrap up this, yeah let's go ahead and wrap up this week's episode uh just a couple of couple of notes before we wrap up uh if you haven't already left us a rating and review on itunes please go ahead and do that because that does really help us co- out quite a bit uh i know that a lot of you really enjoy listening to geek warning but the reality is we are still a pretty new podcast and it would be very helpful to introduce this podcast to a lot more people and leaving us a rating and review five stars only, please, uh, is actually very helpful. Uh, the other thing is if, if you are not yet a member of Escape Collective, uh, that is how we get our funding right now. This is how we all get paid. This is how we all make everything happen here. Uh, so if you'd like- We still we haven't do, run an ad. We still have not run an ad, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if you, if you like what we do, uh, if you want to see more of what we do, if you want to see us maybe even continue to expand coverage, we just launched into cross-country mountain bike not too long ago. Um, please go ahead and head to uh, escapecollective.com. We did finally port everything over from .cc to .com. That's pretty exciting. So yeah, head over to escapecollective.com and become a member. 
Uh, you can also encourage your buddies to be members too. That would be, be even more helpful. Um, but anyway, uh, as always, thanks for listening. We will be back next week with another episode. And we're going to be back with another special Ask a Wrench episode, uh, live recording for our Discord members. Uh, maybe in another six weeks, month or so. We'll see. Sometime sooner than later, though. And we'll be sure to have Zach and Brad Copeland back on for that one. So stay tuned for that. Uh, so yeah, with all that, thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. Yes. Yeah, bye.